0: Controversial and potentially upsetting. Angels are often depicted in the Christmas story as singing, which has also led to the common phrase... ...choirs of angels being used. And it's a compliment if someone says to you, you sing like an angel. This portrayal of angels singing comes from Luke 2.13, which says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying... We quoted what they say in verse 14 earlier. The text does not say they were praising God and singing. There is no indication that the words of verse 14 were accompanied by music or were sung. Singing is certainly one way that we praise God, but it is not the only way. Now, I don't have a problem singing all the Christmas carols we just sang that talked about angels singing, because that's not really the point, is it? It's the content of their praise that's most important. And so even the songs that feature angels singing quickly shift our attention away to Jesus, which is where it needs to be anyway. Angels are God's military messengers. They are imposing figures that strike terror into humans who have seen them. The phrase, heavenly host, is a military phrase. Instead of a choir of angels, we should imagine a platoon of angels. This morning, though angels feature prominently in the Christmas story, I'd like to draw our attention to a different heavenly being. I'd like to explore the story of the cherubim in Scripture. Though cherubim do not feature directly in the Christmas story, I believe through their story we can see an important aspect of the message of Christmas. So what are cherubim? The word cherubim is a plural Hebrew word. The im ending makes it plural. Cherub is singular. Like angels, cherubim have suffered from cultural confusion. They are certainly not chubby little baby boys with wings. It's a sad commentary on church history that supposedly Christian artists in the Middle Ages connected biblical cherubim with pagan gods. Chubby little baby boys are representations of the Greek god Eros, the god of love and sexuality. We're more familiar with his Roman name and his association with Valentine's Day, Cupid. I wish English usage would have referred to these chubby little baby boys as cupids rather than cherubs, but we're stuck with the confusion. The word cherub occurs 91 times in Scripture, only once in the New Testament in a passing reference. They are heavenly creatures associated very closely with God's presence. We get a description of what they look like in Ezekiel's visions. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the prophet receives a wildly bizarre vision, and he attempts to describe what he sees as best he can, and he describes four living creatures. About a year later, in chapters 8 through 11, he receives a second vision with the same creatures. But in the second vision, he identifies them as cherubim. Look at Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 to 14. As I looked, behold... A stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. "...and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle." "'Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. "'Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, "'while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. "'Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. "'As for the likeness of the living creatures, "'their appearance was like burning coals of fire, "'like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. "'And the fire was bright.' And out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Four wings, four faces, four hands, and fire. Ezekiel goes on to describe four wild, whirling wheels and a translucent platform above the cherubim with the glory of God seated on a throne on top of the platform. Rather than thinking about cherubim in terms of either chubby baby boys or of angels, we should think of them as composite or hybrid spiritual creatures. Thus, the Egyptian sphinx is a better comparison. If you look and see on the screen an example of the Egyptian sphinx sphinx, or the Greek sphinx on the next slide or the Persian griffin on the next slide or the Assyrian Lamassu, on the next slide. There are varieties of these kinds of composite creatures depicted in ancient cultures all over the world. I will suggest a reason for this in a few minutes. With these varieties in mind, we might be on the right track to suspect that cherubim are all hybrid creatures, but each one might be made up of different parts, different animals in creation. However, the biblical combination in Ezekiel suggests a divine rationale, at least for these four that Ezekiel sees in his vision. Author Daniel Hayes suggests the various animals included in the composite form of the cherubim symbolize certain strengths those animals were renowned for. The power of an ox, the strength and danger of a lion, the wisdom of a human, the aerial mobility and speed of a bird of prey. There's one other place in Scripture where we get a description of such creatures. John's vision of the heavenly throne room in Revelation 4 features what he refers to as four living creatures, the same phrase Ezekiel used in his first vision. John will never refer to these as cherubim, so it's possible that these are a yet different heavenly creature, but I believe we should see them as the same class of being that we meet in Ezekiel. Hear how John describes their appearance in Revelation 4, verses 6 to 8. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. John doesn't give as detailed a description as Ezekiel does, but we can see the similarities. There are enough differences, however, to make us unsure whether they are the same kind of creature that Ezekiel saw or not. John compares one to a lion, one to an ox, one to a man, and one to an eagle whereas Ezekiel saw each one having features of all four. John's living creatures have six wings. Ezekiel's only had four. John describes them as being full of eyes all around and within, which is a description that we find in Ezekiel 10, 12, describing the wheels that the cherubim were guiding. We are also familiar with part of their chant, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, but this line is what the prophet Isaiah heard from the seraphim in Isaiah 6. Since seraphim are also described there as having six wings, like these creatures in Revelation, some have suggested that John's vision is a mashup of cherubim and seraphim. And others have concluded that cherubim and seraphim are really the same creature. I'm not convinced of either of those conclusions. At this point, I think we see some variety in cherubim. They are composite or hybrid heavenly creatures. They can have different numbers of wings. They can have different numbers of faces. And they may be made up of different representations of different animals. What will be important for our purposes this morning is to see that their function is consistent throughout. And we can track an important storyline through the scriptures by observing them. It's only in the book of Revelation that these creatures speak, but their story has much to tell us. So we're going to consider their story as a kind of drama unfolding in the scriptures. We begin in the beginning, or shortly thereafter. Let's consider Act 1, where the cherubim first appear as the guardians of God's garden. Say that three times fast. The Bible never tells us when, precisely, God created angels and other heavenly beings like cherubim and seraphim. The focus of the creation story in Genesis is on the creation of earth and its inhabitants, climaxing, of course, with the creation of humanity. Over the course of six magnificent days, God repeatedly spoke things into existence. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.3, By faith, we understand. ...that the universe was created by the word of God... ...so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And Paul highlights the Son of God's role in that great work in Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth... ...visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities... ...all things were created through him and for him. Thus, heavenly beings including cherubim, were created by the Son of God and for the Son of God. But heavenly beings were not the crown of God's creation. Special attention is given to the creation of humanity. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we read these familiar words. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth." and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. But God didn't create humanity by merely speaking. Genesis 2-7 tells us that God got his metaphorical hands literally dirty. Then Yahweh, God, formed the man... Of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Verse eight is also important as we set the stage for the cherubim to arrive. and Yahweh, God, planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Why did God put Adam in this garden? Genesis 2:15 tells us. Yahweh, God, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, on a first time reading of Genesis and the rest of Moses' books, that last phrase merely looks like it's saying that Adam is being commissioned to be a gardener. However, these words together are going to have a greater significance later on. It's like in a mystery novel. When you get to the end and you find out who done it, you realize so many of the details earlier in the story that you didn't even notice at first carried huge significance. So it is with the words, work and keep. Remember that the same writer, Moses, wrote the the first five books of the Bible. The next time we read the the Hebrew words translated work and keep together in the same verse is in Numbers 3-7, which is describing the role of the priests in Israel. They shall keep guard over Aaron and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. The priests are to protect Aaron and the people of Israel as they work, as they serve, as they minister in the tabernacle. The priest's work protects the high priest and the people. Who are they working to protect the high priest and the people from? God. Earlier, in Numbers 153, we read about the Levites' role as the people traveled through the wilderness carrying the tabernacle around. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony." The Levites were camping around the tabernacle in order to prevent other Israelites from trespassing and touching the packed-up materials of the tabernacle, which would still be considered to be holy, set apart for God's usage and God's presence. Thus, the Levites serve as armed guards around God's tent, even as it is carried around disassembled. If Israelites trespass in holy space... Outside of the approved times and procedures, God's holy wrath could bring destruction to the people. So, how does this help us understand Adam's job in Genesis 2.15? Adam is being depicted as a priest. The garden is described in several ways that will later be echoed in the tabernacle and the temple of Israel. And the fact that God comes to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden makes the garden holy ground, sacred space. Adam's job is to protect that holy space, that garden sanctuary from anything unclean, unholy, or destructive. To work the garden and to keep the garden means to cultivate God's place to mediate God's presence to other aspects of creation and to protect that space from unholy encroachments. Adam was created as the prototypical priest. Thus, Adam was to be the guardian of God's garden. When we add this insight to the creation mandate given to Adam and Eve together in Genesis 1.28, where we read, and God blessed them, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We can see that humanity was also commissioned in royal terms. Thus, humanity was created to be a royal priesthood. Indeed, this is the fundamental meaning of God creating humanity in His image. God created humanity to rule over this world as kings and queens and to mediate God's presence as priests, expanding the territory of the holy space of the garden across the planet. What did our first royal priesthood do in the garden of God's presence? In short, they let an unclean earthly creature controlled by an unholy heavenly creature Into the holy garden of God's presence. Instead of stomping on the serpent's head or kicking it out of the garden, Adam stood silently by while it deceived his wife, and then King Adam and Queen Eve believed and obeyed the word coming through an animal under their God given authority and provoked God's wrathful judgment. The drama of humanity in the Garden of Eden ends. In Genesis three, twenty-two and 24, Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, Yahweh God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Notice the phrase, to work, in verse 23, and the phrase, to guard, in verse 24. These two were Adam's job in the garden, but now the jobs have been split and changed. Adam no longer works in the garden... He now works the ground, which will resist his efforts because of God's curse of judgment. The priest no longer has a temple. The king has lost his kingdom. Thus, Adam is no longer tasked with guarding God's garden. That task has been reassigned to the cherubim. As the curtain of the drama closes on humanity in the Garden of Eden, the curtain rises on act one of the drama of the cherubim. Humanity has been exiled from God's presence, and a new guardian has been put in place. But now, the guardian of the garden is working to keep humanity away from God's presence and away from God's gift of life. Theologian Ryan Lister writes, In one swift act, the Lord replaces Adam with the cherubim, who, in an ironic twist, are charged with keeping Adam, the original guardian and protector of Eden, from re-entering the garden that was once his to keep and to tend. Posted like sentries, armed guards, an unspecified number of cherubim are stationed at the eastern entrance of the garden, armed with a double-bladed, spinning, fiery red lightsaber. At least that's how I imagine it now. The message of the cherubim to sinful humanity is, keep out. Well, before we advance to Act 2, what happens next? We're never told in Scripture whether or not people ever tried to re enter the garden. However, I suspect people at least knew where it was and saw these cherubim. Some have suggested that Cain and Abel may have brought their offerings to the entrance of the garden, where the cherubim stood guard and may have been viewed as priestly mediators. This, I believe, may be why we see artwork of various composite or hybrid creatures throughout the ancient world. Just like we have global flood stories in other ancient literature that reflect the truth of the biblical narrative about that event, so also this artwork supports the idea that cherubim were known creatures in the ancient world. And we'll see more evidence of this later. Speaking of the flood, that is the next great event that has relevance for the story of the cherubim. I speculate here. However, I believe it's likely that the flood destroyed the Garden of Eden, and thus the cherubim were no longer required on earth. The place God created where he would dwell with people is gone. So, where'd they go? Everywhere we find the cherubim in the Bible, they are always connected to God's presence. And though it may seem odd, our next stop in the drama for Act 2 is all the way at the end of the Bible. To the book of Revelation, we now turn to see the cherubim acting clearly as God's throne attendants. Now, you probably know we're skipping most of the references to cherubim in the Bible. However, I believe John's visions of heaven in Revelation are the right place to go next because they depict the cherubim in their natural habitat, as it were. And Ezekiel's visions, which will be our next stop, are depicting a symbolic reality, as we'll see. All the rest of the mentions of cherubim in the Bible are not referring to actual cherubim, but to artistic renderings of cherubim connected with the tabernacle and the temple. But the real cherubim are depicted in heaven in Revelation. We already reviewed the description John gives of these living creatures in Revelation 4, 6-8. to 8. Let's briefly consider how they function throughout the book. They are depicted as worship leaders and throne attendants. In Revelation 4, 9 and 10, we read, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They also give their hearty amen to the worship of the Lamb by all of creation in Revelation five fourteen, In chapter 6, one of, the living, one of the four living creatures responds to the removal of each of the first four seals from the scroll. They invite the four horses and their riders to come forth to execute the judgment reflected in the scroll. Likewise, in chapter 15, verse 7, we read, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Thus, as throne attendants, they take the bowls of God's wrath from God on the throne and hand them to angels who will then pour out the bowls. In these visions, they are depicted as leading heavenly worship of God and the Lamb, and they are depicted as in some way playing a mediatorial role for God's judgments on the earth. Now, whether you believe they are doing that work today, as I do, or you believe that they will do that work, these visions of judgment will be fulfilled in the future only, depends on your overall understanding of the book of Revelation and end times theology. If these visions of judgment will only be fulfilled on the earth in the future, then perhaps we can still see these cherubim as, un, as continually leading heavenly worship even now, today including those who were temporarily stationed outside the Garden of Eden. One theologian summarizes, The cherubim are throne attendants of God, not angels in the specific sense of the word, for the angels go on errands and carry messages, whereas the cherubim cannot leave the immediate neighborhood of his throne, where they have to give expression to the royal majesty of Jehovah, both by their presence and their unceasing praise. For Act 3, we return to Ezekiel's visions to discover what their role was and what the point of those visions was for Ezekiel and the Jews. They are being portrayed as carriers of God's chariot. The whirling wheels in Ezekiel's visions are reflecting the wheels of a chariot, but not just any chariot. These are pictures of a royal chariot. A royal chariot in the ancient world was considered to be the king's mobile throne. The wheels are portrayed as wheels within wheels, like a gyroscope. This seems to indicate that they can move in any direction without actually turning on an axis. But more important than the wheels is what's up above, being supported by the cherubim. Look at Ezekiel 1, verses 22 to 28. Over the heads of the living creatures, there was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystal spread out above their heads. And under the expanse, their wings were stretched out straight, one toward another. And each creature had two wings covering its body. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And above the expanse over their heads, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal. "'like the appearance of fire enclosed all around, "'and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, "'I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, "'and there was brightness around him. "'Like the appearance of the bow "'that is in the cloud on the day of rain, "'so was the appearance of the brightness all around. "'Such was the appearance of the likeness "'of the glory of Yahweh. "'And when I saw it, I fell on my face, "'and I heard the voice of one speaking.' The significance of the vision of God's glory is well attested by Daniel Hayes, so I'll quote his summary. He writes, The uniqueness of this chariot throne is that it is completely mobile. It can go up, down, backward, forward, or in any direction in an instant without having to turn. The point seems to be that the glory and the presence of God and His sovereign reign over all things from His exalted throne are not limited to the temple in Jerusalem, but are completely mobile to move anywhere God pleases, even to Babylon, where Ezekiel is residing. So Ezekiel receives this vision in the year 593 B.C. Almost exactly one year later, he receives a second vision, which he describes in chapters 8 through 11. Chapter 8 begins with the Lord showing him the idolatry that was going on in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, it's important to remember that Ezekiel was a priest, and he had been taken as a prisoner into Babylon four years earlier, when the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar deported a second group of exiles. Thus, Ezekiel receives this second vision in Babylon about five years before the Babylonians would destroy Jerusalem and the temple as God was punishing them for their idolatry. So in the second vision, after Ezekiel was shown just how awful the idolatry had continued to escalate in Jerusalem since he had been dragged off to Babylon, he sees an elaborate vision of God's glory riding upon this spectacular cherubim-driven chariot throne. It seems like the vision is moving to its climax in chapter 10, verse 19, but then there's a pause and a redirection. Look at Ezekiel 10, 19. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of Yahweh, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Note the entrance at the east gate. This reflects the east entrance of the Garden of Eden. Here we begin to see more connections between the Garden of Eden and the temple. They were both entered and oriented toward the east. As we read what Ezekiel saw, we expect the chariot to exit the building, but it doesn't immediately. Instead, Ezekiel goes on to describe how the Holy Spirit showed him more of the wickedness of the Jewish people, and he inspires the prophet to pronounce judgment against them. Then Ezekiel gives his first prophecy regarding the restoration of God's people and the coming new covenant. Then finally, the vision comes to its proper conclusion in 11, 22, and 23. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Ichabod the glory has departed from Israel. Whereas in the Garden of Eden, God exiled the sinful people away from His presence, here in Jerusalem, God abandons the sinful people before He exiles them from the place He had chosen for His name to dwell. The cherubim here serve as part of God's chariot, as the escorts of the divine King. The cherubim, the Lord here, is described several times throughout the Old Testament, as enthroned on the cherubim. And while Ezekiel receives a visionary picture of that reality, the people of Israel had earlier connected this idea with the Ark of the Covenant, specifically. And we'll come to the cherubim on the Ark in just a few minutes. But first, let's go behind the scenes of this great drama. Let's return to how cherubim were artistically depicted in both the tabernacle and the temple. Why were the Israelites commanded to sow depictions of cherubim into the curtains of the tabernacle. Look at Exodus 26.1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Walking inside the tabernacle would have been an intense visual experience. The curtains which formed the walls of the tabernacle would have been made of blended materials of bright white, blue, purple, and deep scarlet, with cherubim scattered around. This probably would have given off an impression of being surrounded by fire, not to mention these terrifying composite creatures staring at you from every direction. Notice that it's nowhere described what these cherubim looked like, This again suggests that the Israelites were familiar with what they looked like and the craftsmen would have known how to design them into the fabric. Or at least, given the Holy Spirit's inspiration and empowering of the craftsmen, we can be sure that however the cherubim were depicted, it was exactly as God intended, whether they were modeled on particular cherubim in heaven or not. But then in verse 31, another set of cherubim are specified. "...and you shall make a veil..." of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. This would be the curtain that would separate the holy place from the holy of holies, enclosing the Ark of the Covenant within. The tabernacle was to be the place where God would meet with his people, and the holy of holies was the place where God would accept the annual sacrifices of atonement for the people. Thus, the images of the cherubim throughout the tabernacle should have reminded Israelites of the cherubim guarding the entrance of the Garden of Eden. To come into the tabernacle is to draw near to God, and that is dangerous for sinners. But there's a beautiful message here as well. Whereas the real cherubim barred humanity from getting close to God at all, forbidding people from re-entering the Garden of Eden, Here in the tabernacle, God has made a way to dwell with sinful people. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest of Israel enters the Holy of Holies, representing the people of Israel, and in doing so, he reverses Adam's exile from God's presence. The entrance of the tabernacle is always to be facing east, echoing the entrance of the garden, and the high priest enters with the blood of animals, to make atonement for himself and for the people, and to provide cleansing for the tabernacle itself, since the people's sin brings defilement even to God's holy space. Just as the sword of the cherubim outside the garden threatened death to anyone who would attempt to approach the holy God in Eden, so also the high priest only gains entrance through death. And God is graciously chosen to accept the death of a substitute. Animals in the place of the deserved death of the people. Notice that the cherubim in the tabernacle are not depicted with the flaming sword. Instead, the priest brings the blade that executes the substitute so that God may dwell with his sinful people again. The artistic portrayals of cherubim were to be magnified in the temple. They were to be carved into the walls, doors, and various stands or pillars in the temple, as well as in the entrance to the Holy of Holies. In 1 Kings 6.29, we read, Around all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The addition of trees and flowers as part of the decor of the temple was surely designed by God to hearken back to the Garden of Eden. The temple in Jerusalem is to be viewed as the next phase of the return to the garden. Like with the tabernacle, the cherubim create an ominous warning, but they still are not depicted with the flaming sword. Thus, the way for sinners to walk with God has been established. But it is still an awe-inspiring experience not to be entered flippantly. And to emphasize that very point, even for the high priest himself, the Holy of Holies features additional cherubim. Look at First Kings six twenty-three to twenty-eight. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim fifteen feet high out of olive wood. One wing of the first cherub was seven and a half feet long, and the other wing was seven and a half feet long. The wingspan was fifteen feet from tip to tip. The second cherub also was fifteen feet. Both cherubim had the same size and shape. The first cherub's height was 15 feet, and so was the second cherub's. Then he put the cherubim inside the inner temple. Since their wings were spread out, the first one's wing touched one wall, while the second cherub's wing touched the other wall, and in the middle of the temple, their wings were touching wing to wing. He also overlaid the cherubim with gold. If you look at the next slide, you can see an image which imagines what this might have been like. The high priest has to walk into this room that's 30 feet wide, and when he walks in, he's confronted by two golden-plated statues of hybrid creatures, each standing 15 feet tall, with wings stretched out from wall to wall. He only has this experience once a year on the Day of Atonement, but what a terrifying experience it must have been. These giant statues are standing guard over the Ark of the Covenant, which has two more solid gold cherubim on its lid. And it is to that famous box that we must now turn. This is where we find the gospel of the cherubim, as we consider the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. The first item the Israelites were instructed to build in relation to the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. The full instructions are given in Exodus 25, 10 to 22, but I'd like to focus on the lid of this box, described in verses 17 to 22. Make a mercy seat of pure gold, 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. Make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. At its two ends, make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat. The cherubim are to have wings spread out above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and are to face one another. The faces of the cherubim should be toward the mercy seat. Set the mercy seat on top of the ark and put the testimony that I will give you into the ark. I will meet with you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Testimony. I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. He's addressing Moses specifically there. One artist's rendering of this box can be seen on the next slide. It is a curiosity of translation that the phrase, Mercy Seat, is the typical name that most English-speaking Christians know of this lid. The translation predates the King James Version to some of the earlier but less familiar English translations. The Hebrew word is not related to the words for mercy, and it has nothing to do with the idea of a chair. The NIV has helped us by using the phrase atonement cover instead. The Lord tells Moses that he will meet him above this lid between these two cherubim. But it is also on this lid where the high priest will apply the blood of the sacrifices on the day of atonement. Leviticus 16.14 tells us this. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. That's to be repeated for each of the sacrifices for himself, for his family as priests, and for the people of Israel as a whole. What's happening in this act? What does it represent? Well, a detail found in David's words from First Chronicles 28, 2 is important here. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of Yahweh and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building. In other cultures of the ancient world, it was common to place a copy of covenant documents in the footstool of the fabricated throne of their idols. In Israel, the one true God has no idols, But he does sit on a throne above the people, and it is depicted as being above the cherubim. As in Ezekiel's visions, where God sits on his mobile throne, and below his mobile throne are the cherubim with the wheels, and and if his mobile chariot is held up by cherubim, perhaps we are to understand the cherubim on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant as a kind of footstool for his feet, as it is described in several places in Scripture so that when he is sitting on his heavenly throne, his feet extend down into the temple and onto the Holy of Holies and onto the Ark of the Covenant itself. Inside the box were stored the tablets recording the covenant stipulations, the Mosaic Law. Thus God sits on his throne and he welcomes Moses to come before him at his feet. But there's more. Back in Exodus 25, 20, notice that the cherubim are positioned in such a way that they're facing down, looking at the lid of the box. And their wings are overshadowing it. If the cherubim are the guardians of God's presence that they've always been, then they are looking down to point out the way to gain access to God's presence. Access to God goes through obedience to the law stored in the box. But if you can't obey the law in the box, the lid becomes the place of atonement where disobedience to that law can be forgiven when the blood of the sacrifices is applied. The cherubim bar the way against sinners who would approach God. Their golden likeness on the Ark of the Covenant reminds the high priest every year that to get to God, you've got to get past the cherubim. And God has made a way for humans to get past the cherubim. It's Jesus. Paul actually describes Jesus as fulfilling the purpose of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. In Romans 3.25, he speaks of Jesus as the one whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The Greek word translated propitiation in the ESV everywhere else literally refers to the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It is the place where atonement was made. It is the place where the blood of the sacrifices was applied on the very footstool of God's throne. And God received the death of Jesus as a perfect substitute for sinners. Jesus obeyed the law in the box completely and He volunteered to endure the curse of the law in the place of those who had disobeyed the law but would come to Him in faith and repentance. Moreover, Jesus' death on the cross did something else that connects with the cherubim. The moment Jesus died, we are told, in Matthew 27, 51, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain, embroidered, with images of cherubim all over, communicating the message to sinful people, keep out! That curtain was destroyed, showing that the way to experience God's presence is no longer shut. All who trust the last Adam, the rightful human king, the truest high priest, the only mediator between God and man, may come on in. A man has made it past the cherubim. The divine man has taken up his post as royal priest over a new creation. The gates to God's presence are open wide once again. After the destruction of Solomon's temple by the Babylonians, the Ark of the Covenant was never seen again, surely melted down in Babylon. Jeremiah prophesied thus in Jeremiah 3.16, And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares Yahweh, they shall no more say, The Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh! It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. He's looking ahead to the restoration of God's people after their judgment. The new covenant will no longer require an ark. And the new creation will no longer require cherubim as God's protective presence. The guardians of God's presence. Believers in Jesus have unrestricted access to God without threat of judgment. Emmanuel has come.